you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3. We're going to continue our study. Uh, we did have our series in Sunday school, um, and we're talking about what we call the sin timeline. Um, I was sharing in Sunday school that it was not planned that I had the Sunday school hour for a few weeks there, um, right when we were talking about this, but it seemed to fit together, and if you weren't in the Sunday school hour, that's okay. We still have the worship service here to, to examine some things, but we've been talking about sin, and I, I just want to say right up front here that, you know, it, it's a tough subject. It's, it's, it's kind of a slog, you know what I mean? I mean? I'm just being honest, but at the same time, these are necessary things that the scriptures have, have given to us, and, and God wants us to hear, but, but we have other things that are coming, okay? But we want to do due diligence here. We want to be uh, accurate to the text and, and examine it and then really apply that to our living. But as we consider this, we're going to go ahead and read for you just to, just to refresh our minds. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1 and then go down through verse 7. It says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, okay, as a result, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you also once walked when you lived in them. <clears throat> As we think about this, first of all, last week we examined a difficult subject and we will discreetly review last week's message. Uh, we did ask for the younger kids to be out because there's just some, some difficult uh, things involved with that. Uh, when we take verses 1 through 4 into account, it is easy to see that Paul is encouraging the believer to kill off the sinful elements of our life that can take the focus off Christ and eternal things. It's those earthly things that we are to be putting to death. Last week, we looked at the fleshly, selfish acts done in the body and the thoughts played out in the mind. All of these selfish, sex-centered sins need to be killed off. We determined that the phrase to put to death meant a decisive, once-for-all action. But the intended action is to killing off these fleshy acts and therefore, and thoughts every time we see them occurring. So in other words, when they rise up in our lives, we need to kill them and kill them again and again. It is a constant thing, but it is an ever-present action that we need to take. Of course, the first battle that takes place is in our mind. Taking control of temptation and rendering it dead as its source is what we really need to do. So this morning, we're going to finish this list as we examine the subject of covetousness. Covetousness examined. What is covetousness? It's a larger word. It's not a common word that we use today. But simply put, Covetousness is a person's selfish desire to get what they don't have or to want what somebody else possesses, right? We want something. Either we don't have it or somebody else does, and we desire it. 
So why is coveting in this list comprising sexual immorality? There's another list that's coming, but there's definitely a break before then, and this list includes this sin. And we need to note that this isn't simply a list of subjective standards adopted by society. Got to be reminded of that. These are sinful acts based upon God's objective word. He's the one who determines what is right and wrong. So why is coveting, again, listed in sins of this nature? One of the most basic urges to take care of is to take care of self and feed every want that we have. The constant pull to want something more or better or new is a basic and potentially destructive uh, force in our lives. And it can be as destructive as our desire for fleshly gratification. We know the kind of damage that that can do. The word covetousness or yearning for things presents, represents any and all kinds of selfish, sinful cravings. Let's not forget that coveting isn't just the desire, but is also the carrying out of that desire. So it parallels lust and fornication, right? Lust is the desire. Fornication is the act of doing it. It's the same thing with covetousness. It's all included in there. He also puts it here because of how serious and sneaky it can be. Paul sets this sin apart from the others with a qualifier. Paul declares that coveting is idolatry. They are one and the same. Wow. That kind of steps it up a little bit, doesn't it? So how is covetousness idolatry? Well, we establish that coveting is a drive to fulfill selfish desires, right? Which means that covetousness is desiring something earthly. Okay, that's what we're not supposed to be focused on. So by nature, the object of our selfish desires is contrary to God. As a result, our focus is wrong. It's off. And we are pursuing a replacement for the heavenly. We're actually pursuing a replacement for God himself. So let's think about it this way. Sin means to miss the mark. This makes what we desire an idol, replacing God as the focus of our desire. Our focus is off. We're missing the mark by desiring something else. Let's take a look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, as God reveals what we call the Ten Commandments. This is the second of those commandments. You shall not make for yourself carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Okay? It can't get much clearer than that. Don't make anything an idol to bow down to. The Lord later explains in more detail how he sees idolatry. I'd like you for, for you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. We're going to begin here in verse 5 as Moses um, is told to cut two stone tablets and, and, and put the Ten Commandments on them. Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 17. 
Then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Now, just briefly, we had a message a long time ago about this, and this is basically saying that, uh, there is the danger of a sinful generation passing that on and continuing that, okay? We know that the scriptures also tell us that that can be broken any time that someone responds in obedience, all right? But that's what we're seeing here. So I want us to see both the, 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 the blessings that God is talking about and, and the problem that he has with sin. And so Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And then he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. And then he said, behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will, be, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are, you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, and the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images." For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord your God is jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you when you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. Sounds kind of serious, doesn't it? You shall make no molded gods for yourselves. God sees idolatry as his people spiritually cheating on him. No two ways about it. Young people, have you ever had a friend play with you or hang out with you at lunch until another friend comes along and then that friend leaves and disses you? Right? Mid-conversation, sipping on your lunch milk, right? Your friend's gone. What happened? Where'd they go? Oh, somebody a little more popular came along. We replace our God as our focus and delight in earthly stuff that won't be worth anything for eternity. We do the same thing. Something that we think is a little bright and shiny comes along and we up and leave him. Sometimes it can be much worse though. At some point, the very things we desire will bring terrible harm to us and possibly others. Here's Paul's perspective on this. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul says that everything he was striving for in his past life counted for nothing. When it comes down to it, he considers all of it trash compared to knowing Jesus. So in Paul's mind, focusing on the earthly isn't just trading God, the very best, so to speak, for something good 
but lesser? No. According to Paul, we cheat on God and we go to the dump to play with the trash. That's really what idolatry is. So how do we make an idol out of something? When we desire, not admire, but desire someone's house or car or boat or spouse that someone else has. I'm ashamed to tell you that I got in so many arguments with my next door neighbor because our car had to be cooler, our boat had to be cooler, our house had to be better. My dad can beat up your dad, right? On and on it went. My neighbor and I, we were the same age, same class, and there was always this competition. When we put our focus on gaming systems, looks, or an ability that someone else has, we are coveting. We're making something an idol. When success is our end result and we aren't focused on bringing glory to God, we're making an idol out of that. How else do we do it? When we are more concerned about pleasing others than pleasing our God who saved us and gave us everything. Because now we're serving somebody else. Also, when we trust in our own strength and our own abilities. Wait a minute, Pastor Scott, that's, that's American, right? You pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. We're self-sufficient. Is it possible? Think about this for a minute. Is it possible to go the Christian life alone? I mean, if, if we even call it the Christian life, then how can we live it successfully by ourselves? When Christ himself said, I'm leaving to his disciples, I'm leaving and it's better for you because I'm going to give you the spirit to do what? To help you in life. A number of things can also accompany coveting. Jealousy and envy. Our selfishness can often get personal with others. And we want what they want. It can affect our relationships. Because if somebody has what we want, we can begin to resent them. Dissatisfaction. Touched on that already probably, but we easily lose our appreciation for what God has already blessed us with when we're craving for something else. What we want What's coming next? Contentment and peace are replaced with a restlessness and a possible frustration. Has that ever happened to you? Folks, I'm just telling you right now, this is confession time for me. Let's be honest. Wanting what's next. Getting all churned up because I don't have it yet. It's not going to schedule. Anger and sadness can creep in as we constantly reach for bigger and better and more. The other thing that can accompany covetousness is hurting others. Just to kind of give you an illustration, if I want to get ahead of my career, I might expect others to work their schedules around my goals and expectations, right? Because I, I, I got to have the green light. I, I'm moving. 
I can turn my time and attention, my efforts, even my love, away from my family, my friends, and my church. Folks, we call that neglect. Our emotions begin to reveal our selfishness. We can lash out because we're so focused on what we have to have that it really doesn't matter what other people think or feel. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 tell us this. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Harkening back to what God said in the Old Testament, right? Adulterers and adulteresses. Wow. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. A Christian who covets trusts in himself. A Christian who covets can do great harm. And a Christian who covets, look at this passage, will not attain the satisfaction that they're looking for. Wow. We can most easily fool ourselves with saying things like, I want to provide what's best for my family. I want to be a good testimony at work or at school. This is just temporary, just until I, I get what I need or accomplish what I want. Or once I have this or that, then I'll be happy and I'll stop. How about, I deserve it. It's not fair, so I just want to make things more even. We can begin to question God's character, his goodness, his justice, and provision, which can fester and corrupt our hearts. But I want to be careful that we provide some balance. God is not against possessions. There is nothing wrong with enjoying the fruits of our labor. There is nothing wrong with having anything within his will and with the right art attitude. Let's say it a different way. God blesses, and some of that is temporary, temporal, of this world. And we can and should enjoy the life that God has given to us. The question is, does anything own us, or does God own what we have? Now notice, it's a little subtle, but I didn't say, do you own it, or does it own you? It's not really the right equation. Have we given everything over to the Lord or are we enslaved by what we possess or desire to possess? That's really the question. If we've given it to God and it's for his glory and it's because we understand his blessing and we're using it rightly, then it's not going to own us. But when it's about getting and about being and those other things, and it's about fulfilling our own selfish desires, then really it's possessed us. 
So we looked at covetousness examined. Let's look at covetousness illustrated. And folks, we, we uh, don't have time to delve into a couple of passages that I want to look at here. So we're just going to kind of look at them verbally. I think that many of us are aware of these. I will tell you where they're located, but we, I want to look at the, the sin of Achan. Some of us have maybe studied that even recently in Sunday school. It's an event out of Joshua chapter 7, if you want to note that. But let me give you just a quick background. Israel has entered the promised land under Joshua. The first city they attacked was Jericho, a very powerful city with huge, thick walls. The Lord provided a miraculous victory over a very strong enemy. Now, part of that story is a man named Achan was a part of the battle and entered the city with the Lord, when the Lord brought these great walls down. For Achan, it was an unexpected sin of opportunity. As he participated in the attack, he saw and packed away some things that God commanded all of them to leave and to destroy. Does everybody remember the story thus far? I'm pretty accurate here. God said, don't take anything. Be separate from it. Now, other times he said, enjoy the spoils. This time he said, no. And I do believe it was because God wanted the glory for that, as he should. This is the beginning of the battles. This was the campaign to take the promised land. He had promised land. He had promised it to them. He was providing it for them. And so it wasn't time to be like, hey, look at all this great stuff we have. No, it's look at the great God that we have. That was the purpose. So again, we can't forget they were entering the promised land. No doubt Achan saw many from the rebellious generation die until they were all gone and the children of Israel were ready to go enter the land. He was one of them. Now, based upon the story, he was a family man. He must have been somewhat of an upstanding guy with a decent reputation because no one suspected him of stealing. No one suspected him of, of taking this stuff. Yet he traded the promises of God, all those things that God gave him, for a few unlawful spoils of war. In a moment of weakness, Achan chose the earthly, temporary, flashy clothes and the shine of gold and silver to replace the promises of God and fellowship with him. Let's also not forget that in the next battle of Ai, 36 men died. Because there was sin in the camp. Those men died because Achan saw a way to make some quick and easy money to get ahead outside of God's plan. Now let's look at another heartwarming, another heartwarming story in 1 Kings 21. Ahab and Jezebel. A lovely couple. And I can't be any more sarcastic. Okay. Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, wanted to buy a vineyard from a man named Naboth. The king coveted the vineyard for his vegetable garden and especially desired it because it was right next to his property. Location, location, location. Right? That's what we're dealing with here. Naboth refused the king because he would be giving up his land, his family's connection to all God's promises. 
We were just talking about that. They're going in into the promised land. This is his family's plot. And the king says, hey, sell that to me. I want to plant some vegetables. I, I can't do that. This, this is my family's land. This is, this is our roots. This, this, this is our connection to all that God has given to us. That was the reason that he gave. And we have to believe by scripture that that's what he meant. So the king went into his home and pouted like a child who didn't get his way. He wouldn't even eat. He was so upset. Now, what we might miss in this whole story, because it's so graphic, is that Jezebel had a coveting problem too. And hers was power. When her husband whimpered about not getting his way, Jezebel said, and I'm going to quote to you verse 7, you now exercise authority over Israel. You know what she said? Buddy, you're the king. You can do whatever you want. So Ahab's evil wife hatched a vile plan to have Naboth murdered and then gave his land to her husband. So a whiny, spoiled brat king and a ruthless, cold-hearted queen took the life of the land of a good man. Naboth's only crime was wanting to keep his family's own part of the promised land. Jezebel's sin was planned, not a surprise temptation. It was a cold and calculated execution to gain what her husband coveted. So how did King Ahab respond? And again, I'm sorry, the sarcastic is still coming. He took his thumb out of his mouth and immediately went to go play in his new garden with absolutely no regard for the life of the previous owner. Wow. Which brings us to the coming wrath of God. If we look back at Colossians chapter 3, tells us, put to death covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. If we interpret this as the future wrath of God against spiritual lost people of the judgment seat, I believe we're sadly mistaken. There's nothing in the text that directs us to a distant future wrath after this life is over. There is judgment coming. And there are passages that talk about a future judgment. But what this is basically saying is there are consequences that come after, future, post-sin. Right? God's not going to judge us for what we haven't done. God's not going to judge the, sin, the, the, the disobedient specifically for something they haven't done. But he is going to judge us for what we've done. Paul is talking directly to the Colossians. And if he's doing that, then through his word, the Lord is talking directly to each of us. And he's telling us there are consequences. We are warned that these sins will bring serious consequences because they are serious offenses against God. And God's wrath will come against such sins. Unfortunately, I could tell you in my own life of terrible consequences that I have paid. 
I could give you a litany of all kinds of other people's sin publicly that have harmed people. I don't know that that's necessarily what we should be thinking about right now. We should be thinking about our own hearts and our own lives and consider how we can avoid it. Which brings us to concluding our time together. This morning we looked at God's coming wrath and two weeks ago we covered Colossians 3.7 where it says, in which you once walked in them. Uh, that was their past lifestyle. So these two, may, these basically make up two reasons that Paul is giving not to sin. The first is, we'll be subject to God's wrath and correction. That's what we just covered. We saw examples of this with Achan, with Ahab and Jezebel, but we could easily consider in the scriptures David, Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, and many others who sinned, sometimes knowingly, sometimes planned, sometimes calculated like we've seen. Sometimes they were acts of, of, of opportunity that, that they didn't necessarily see coming, but they didn't respond properly. We have all seen or, or even experienced the consequences of sexual sins and coveting. The second thing that we're given as a warning not to sin is that it's in our past. Everything that Paul wrote leading up to this section tells us the Colossians already knew better, right? They knew better. They knew God's expectations and they lived accordingly. So here's my question for us this morning. Do we? Do we know better than to engage in carnal sins? Do we know better than to take our daily relationship with Christ and put in, in, in his rightful place all these other things that offend God and are harmful to us? And the answer is yes, we know. We know better. But what we've talked about, hearkening back a little bit to verses 1 through 4, is that we need to have the right focus. We need to have the right focus. So again, I know this is a tough passage to go through. There isn't one of us here that doesn't have a longing that we can battle with at times. I'm not talking about enjoying the fruit of our labors. I'm not talking about enjoying the blessings of God. I'm talking about the want, right? The selfish desires. We all have those. We all battle with those. I'm not standing here in judgment and saying that you always transgress, that you always fall into those. This is saying, don't do that because it's idolatry, right? But what I want us to do is kind of work through our focus here. Now, you all know that I love to bird watch. I really try not to just insert birds every time I can. But this time I did. While I'm bird watching, I also try to take pictures of birds. I'm not nearly as successful at doing that as I am just seeing them. But I'm going to have a little bird help us understand how important it is for us to have the right focus. This is a Blackburnian warbler. He's a cute little guy, about five inches long that migrates through our area every spring and fall. They don't always look this way in the fall. But photographing these tiny birds is challenging. Sometimes my focus is off. 
Notice the branch is beautiful. (laughs) No matter how strong my desire might be to get a good shot, if my focus is off, I will not get a good picture. My subject will be blurred. I think you're understanding the analogy. Sometimes I don't even have my target in view. That is a real-time picture of me trying to take a picture of a bird. (laughs) It's the same with doing right. We can wish and want all day long, but if our actual thoughts and actions are wrong, then it is impossible to keep Christ and eternal things in focus. Isn't that right? We can't do it. How can you have salty water and fresh water coming out of the same well? Isn't that what Jesus said? So it's not going to happen. What we need to keep in mind is that unlike birds that like to hide behind things, God doesn't hide his standards from us. He makes them very plain to see. And his standards never change. So he he won't change his expectations. God does not move his target. Yes, you now understand why it's so frustrating to try to take pictures of birds. Okay? We have some good friends, and um, my standard phrase is, birds are evil. I love them. But birds are evil, okay? It just so happens that we still have that tinge inside of us as well. And so, you know, we need to keep in mind, God doesn't hide his standard and he doesn't move the goalposts. He makes it very obvious and he doesn't change. Neither do his standards change. But when properly in focus, I capture my subject clearly. I was really hoping for that reaction. (laughs) Uh, Just like when our focus is properly on the Lord and we are obeying him, right? We see him clearly. We do what we're told. We know where we're headed. Our focus is right. And what happens? It brings us great joy. (laughs) So here's the question then. Where is our focus? Where is our focus? So rather than end with a bird, I want to end with the word. I want to return to Psalm 73 and consider how the author Asaph struggled with envy and coveting. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some excerpts from that book, and then we're going to read a few portions, and they will be right up here on the screen. He says, God is good to the pure in heart. He starts off the psalm with that. So he starts off great, but then he says, I almost stumbled and fell. Why? I was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. I mean, he admits it. I saw what other people had. They seemed to live carefree with excessive abundance and few troubles. That's, that was his perspective. They are arrogant oppressive, and scoff at God. How can this be? 
I was almost convinced I was a fool for trying to live righteously. He says, I was really struggling. Folks, come on. Have you ever been there? Why? Why does it seem like? And then just fill in the blank. But then I worship God. And I began to understand that destruction actually awaits them. And now let's jump into the psalm here. Starting at verse 21. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by your right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterward, receive me to glory. This is someone who's coveting, right? No. This is someone who's seen that doesn't pay. I want to keep my focus on Christ. I want to keep my focus on the Lord. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. None other, no thing other. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you by harlotry. Remember that theme that continues to go through. Covetousness is idolatry. Idolatry is cheating on God. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Folks, let me tell you something. We know, we can know when our focus is right because we are going to actively speak positively about our God, his greatness and his goodness. You can't do both unless you want to be a total hypocrite. You can't do both. You can't sit there and grumble and say, life isn't fair and I'm so blessed. We can't pursue what we're not supposed to be pursuing and make an idol out of that and say, God is great. We can, but it's worthless. So again, to turn this around, bring this to a positive. When we focus on God, did you see the blessings that Asaph received? But his first step was, I came to God. And I worshiped. When we recognize who he is and we recognize his great works, we see his blessings and we also see his character. Folks, it just comes down to it. We're going to say no to sin. If our focus is right, then the snapshot of our life is going to be correct. Now, here's the problem that we have. You guys know how they make movies, right? Now, maybe they don't do it exactly the same today, but back in the day with those big reels, they just played a bunch of little pictures real fast. That's what life is. Life is a whole bunch of choices, a whole bunch of thoughts that all get played together. But every time, focus has to be right. Every time. Why? Because I came into God's presence and I realized he is a good and a great God. 
It doesn't matter what those other people are doing. And oh, by the way, they're destined for destruction. My perspective was wrong. All I was looking at was the surface and the outward, and I didn't realize these are dead people. That's who I'm lusting after. Instead, I serve and I love and I desire the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow before you, it is just a good time for us with our hearts together to just admit there are times, Lord, when covetousness wins out. And it's not, oh, we didn't really want that to happen. Ultimately, we did because we made a decision. So, Father, even today, we just pray for forgiveness. We pray for forgiveness for just allowing something else to take our focus off of you. Lord, it's work. We know that. You knew that when you called us into your family. I pray that you give us a strength based upon your character and based upon your fixed word, your standards that don't change, that we will keep our focus on you, that our, our, our desires will be for knowing Christ, for doing your will, for, for storing up those eternal, heavenly treasures that you've even promised blessings as a result. We thank you so much for your patience in our lives. We thank you for your forgiveness. And we thank you that we ultimately know that Christ paid for all of it. What a great and glorious gift. Lord, if there's someone here who has not experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, where this isn't even really a struggle, it might be a matter of doing right or wrong, but ultimately, none of us can please you in our own strength. None of us can gain any footing toward heaven. It is completely and wholly placing our faith in what Jesus has already done. And so, Lord, I pray that if you are speaking to someone today, that they would respond. And if they need some help with that, they would seek one of us out. In Christ's name, amen.